Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. again. Uh, If you are just joining us this morning, you are uh, joining us on the very, very end of our uh, first sermon series here as a church that we've been uh, working through the book of 1 Peter and entitled uh, Citizens as Strangers. So I hope this has been a blessing to you. I think it's set the tone for us in some really important ways, and I'm also really excited to kick off Advent next week. Uh, We'll be jumping into that leading up to Christmas Eve. Uh, and that series will be called The Long-Expected King. So I love Advent. I don't know about you. In fact, we have some invitation cards available on the back table and outside. Uh, some people are much more prone to come to church on Christmas than they would elsewise. So we'd encourage you to grab an invite card. Uh, be praying for your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus and maybe extend an invitation uh, for them to come and explore uh, this long-expected king with us. So uh, really excited for that. We'll be introduced. I know Pastor Ryan's working on some Christmas hymns and music and uh, going to be a good time. We're going to get a little bit more of a band up here, so I'm really excited for all of that. Uh, but before we get too far ahead, that's next week. So let's let's stay focused here this week as we turn our attention to uh, Peter's final remarks here in this letter. Uh, I think it's quite possible that Peter uh, may have thought that these were going to be the last words that he gave to these churches he's writing to. Uh, we know that First and Second Peter is best we can tell, were written pretty close together, and we also know that Peter was martyred. He was killed for his faith at the hand of Emperor Nero, if church history is correct, uh, just a few short years after writing this. And so this morning, as we enter into chapter 5 here, I think we're going to sense a little bit of urgency from Peter. There's a real personal concern for these churches that comes out in these uh, concluding verses of his letter. And I find it really interesting where he focuses his attention. So this is his final words. He's already like seemingly tried to end the letter a couple times. We've already had a few amens before chapter 5. And then he comes here and he says, all right, last words, here we go. And he chooses to focus on leadership. He chooses to focus on leadership within the local church. Now, one of the patterns that we see in the New Testament for reading our Bibles closely, especially in the book of Acts, which is that historical account of how the church expanded and grew and spread out into the Roman Empire and spread like wildfire. One of the things that we see is a priority for the apostles, is a priority for the leaders of the early church, was to basically establish godly, qualified, competent leaders to organize, to teach, to perfect to protect, and to care for the family of God as it was scattered across in local expressions throughout the Roman Empire. Now, the primary imagery that Peter gives us here is one of shepherds and sheep. So those who lead the church are called to be shepherds. Those who are part of the church, part of God's family, are called the sheep. Now, this was a metaphor that the first century church, and in the time of the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, everybody would have gotten right away. But how many of you own sheep here? Anybody? I'll see Andrew too, my, my farmer friend here this morning. Yeah, I don't think anybody here owns sheep, right? Maybe you do, maybe I missed you. Um, this was a very popular profession. Now we kind of relegate it to the petting zoo, right? That's the last time I remember touching a sheep. So the imagery can be a bit lost on us, but here's the thing with sheep, okay? They desperately need to be led. 
and they desperately need to be led well. I don't know if you know this about sheep, but if I can put it uh, kindly, they are fairly helpless animals. Uh, If you let them out into the wild, they just sort of wander around aimlessly in packs. Uh, They get lost very easily. They need help finding food and water, like they need to be led directly to it. Uh, They need help getting up when they've fallen over. That's a fun YouTube search for later, by the way. Uh, And about once a year, you'll hear of this story, and it's kind of sad because this is a major economic impact, uh, but you'll hear of a situation where hundreds and sometimes thousands of sheep will follow a stray sheep like off a cliff, and then they all tumble and go over. The last ones make it because there's a nice cushion to land on, a little morbid, but uh, sheep need to be led. I mean, this is what we see in the wild. Uh, But despite all this, there's something beautiful here, right? Sheep need to be led, but they also were incredibly valuable. Shepherding was a big economic deal in the time of Jesus. Sheep provided food to eat. Uh, Allegedly, they provide milk to drink. I'm going to let somebody else check that out for me. Uh, Wool for clothing. Their hides could be used to make housing structures and tents. Their bones could be used for various things. And so we see this picture of sheep who are incredibly vulnerable yet also incredibly valued. And that's, that's us. That's the church. That's the imagery that Peter and elsewhere in the New Testament chooses to use, that we are vulnerable people, yet we are incredibly valued. And so Peter, looking at that, says, you need good shepherds. You need good shepherds to lead you. You need good shepherds to guide you. And so as we press into this metaphor today, there's a great deal that we have to learn about this shepherd-sheep relationship. Now, as we talk about leadership in the local church, uh, I think the scriptures would tell us that very few of you in this room would would feel called to be a pastor or to be a leader of a local church at this level. But I don't want you to check out this morning because this conversation is important, not just for pastors. Now, this conversation is very important for the whole church. Because a church that cultivates healthy and biblical leadership tends to grow, while churches that do not take this seriously end up in dangerous and vulnerable positions. And so there's a reason that there's a focus in the scriptures on leadership over and over and over again. And it's important that the whole church learns what the Bible has to say and then fights to cultivate a culture where what we see here in the scriptures is practically being played out. So with all of that in mind, here is the main idea this morning as we kind of wrap up 1 Peter and our series. Elders, I'll define that in a minute, elders are to pastor the church of God toward humility and faithfulness to stand firm against all opposition. So elders are to pastor the church of God toward humility and faithfulness to stand firm against all opposition. I think that's Peter's ending push here in chapter 5. And we'll see this over two points. First, we'll see shepherding the flock of God, what that looks like. And then secondly, what it means to stand firm in the grace of God. So shepherding the flock of God and then standing firm in the grace of God. Well, let me pray. Let me ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that it speaks truth to us. I pray now as we turn our attention towards it, uh, that we would humbly submit ourselves to it. Holy Spirit, may you speak through this book that you authored. May you speak and apply the good news of the gospel and the practical outworkings of that, as we'll see this morning, into the hearts and the minds and the spirits who are here in this room. God, thank you 
for calling us together as a church. I pray now as we turn our attention to you that you simply would point us to the hope of the gospel, that you would use me as a mouthpiece to do so. You would move me out of the way that the words I share now would be your words from this book and that you would encourage us and stir us up to a greater worship of you as we do so. Holy Spirit, may you be big in this time. Jesus, may you be clearly seen. We're begging that to be the case. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin by shepherding the flock of God. Look at verse 1 once more with me. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter begins his address here in this section to the elders among you. Now the Bible uses a variety of terms to describe the kind of leadership of a local church. And there's been great debates throughout church history about what form of church governance is really taught here in the scriptures. In fact, there are one of the reasons why, one of the primary reasons why there are many, many denominations and many splits throughout church history is because of this specific conversation. There's a disagreement about how people piece together what the New Testament has to say about leadership in the local church. But, and if I'm honest, there are some times where I wish the Bible was more clear. But that doesn't mean we just plead ignorance, okay? There are some things that the Bible does teach clearly, and one of them is the terminology that's used to describe leaders in the local church. The primary and the normative term used to describe the official established leaders of churches is elder. It's elder. Now, you might find this term scattered across the New Testament. It actually appears most often. So you can look at the book of Acts. You can look at Timothy and Titus, who are written to elders or pastors. You can look at James. You can look at Peter. That's the word that shows up the most often in the New Testament. And in fact, I think there's good evidence to believe that a couple of these other terms are used synonymously with elder. They mean the same thing. So if you look at Acts 20, for example, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. In his address, he also uses the word episkopos in Greek, which means bishop or overseer. And he also uses the term pastor. Now, pastor is what we're familiar with, but it's actually used the least often in the New Testament. But all three terms, overseer or bishop, elder, pastor, they seem to be used interchangeably. And so here at the King's Church, as we piece that together, uh, we have a conviction that elders are pastors, that that's the same role. And so we have three elders or pastors that are here at the King's Church. We have myself and Ryan and Pat, right? We go interchangeably between elders and pastors. Those are the ones who are called to be the spiritual leaders of the church. Now, what's interesting here is as Peter addresses these elders, I think he makes six observations about them. There's six things in these first four or five verses that I think put a really good kind of structure for us this morning around what is an elder? What exactly are they doing? What does it mean to pastor and to shepherd the flock? And so I just want to work through these six observations together. So observation number one, we see it right there in the text to begin. Number one, elders serve in a plurality. Elders serve in a plurality. If you look closely, it's subtle. We might have missed it. But he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Right, so this concept of elder in the New Testament always appears in the plural. There is not a time in the New Testament where elder refers to just one single solo leader over a local church. It's always used in the plural. And Peter here addresses himself as a fellow elder. He actually makes up a word in the Greek 
which feels very empowering to me as a pastor to keep making up words occasionally, right? Uh, but Peter, I guess he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We'll give him that, right? Uh, he's making up a new term here that's never been seen before in the Greek of a fellow elder. I think what's neat is he begins the letter as an apostle, and then he ends the letter as a fellow elder. There's some cool humility there, right? He asserts his apostleship, his, his position of being commissioned by Jesus himself, but then he ends with a great deal of humility as a fellow elder. I'm speaking to you who are leading these churches as someone who understands what you face. I'm a fellow elder alongside you. Now, I think practically speaking, there is great wisdom in having a plurality of leaders within the local church. Here's a few just practical reasons. First of all, the idea of a shared leadership, I think, is a principle that we see over and over again in the New Testament. Right? When Jesus comes and calls the disciples, he doesn't call one disciple. He calls the disciples. And you know what he does when he sends them out for mission? He sends them in teams. Right? The pattern over and over again is a shared leadership because pastoral ministry is kind of hard. It's hard work. You're dealing with people's lives and their souls and their messiness and their high points and their low points. Shared leadership is best for the long-term health of both a particular elder and a local church that they might lead. Secondly is accountability. Plurality of elders keeps a healthy system of checks and balances and keeps from one individual making all of the key decisions for a local church. I think it is unwise for one person to be the key decision maker of everything going on in the local church, right? Our doctrine of sin and the fallenness of man is way too strong to trust that to be true, okay? So I think there is a principle in the New Testament of potentially a lead pastor or a first among equals. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there seems to be one who kind of leads the charge, but he does so with a team around him. And guess what? Practically, you know how this works? I'm one vote at the elder table, which is good. It's healthy. You should say amen to that, right? That's a good thing that I'm only one vote at the elder table. I can easily be outvoted of something. So accountability is right there. A third, it's a better balance of strengths and weaknesses, right? We're going to see that the scope of responsibility for an elder is great. The roles for a pastor are great, and no one person's going to be great at all of them. And so it is so valuable to have some people who are stronger in certain areas who can help those who are weak in others. So this beautiful picture of this plurality of leadership provides a sharing of the load, accountability for those in this position, and a better balance of strengths and weaknesses. For all of that reason, for all of those reasons, and probably more, there seems to be a clear unified teaching on the New Testament that churches are to be led by a plurality of elders, more than one. Now, as a brief aside, I should also note that it's our conviction from the scriptures that elders are to be a plurality of men. I know this can be controversial in our day and age since we live in a culture that views any distinction between genders with suspicion and starts to equate value to role and function, which is not a biblical worldview, by the way. If you're equating somebody's worth and value to their position or what they can do, that's a secular worldview. But that's the world that we inhabit, right? And so uh, maybe to quote Bob Thune here who wrote a really good little book on eldership. He says, this is not a matter of empowering men and restricting women, but rather of freeing both sexes to enjoy the beautiful, God-glorifying harmony of a robust interdependence. See, our conviction here at the King's Church is that there is a complementarian relationship 
between men and women. We don't think gender is an accident. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the scriptures, before the fall, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created them male and female. There's something in God's good design for maleness and femaleness. Now, this gets complicated at the fall, right? But it doesn't mean we abandon God's good design that we see there. So men and women are equal before God in dignity, worth, and value, but they're not equivalent, and they're not interchangeable. There's some, something in God's good design for men, something in God's good design for women. And what we see in the scriptures from beginning to end is that men are called to be servant leaders in two places, in the home and in the church, in the home and in the church. And by the way, if we start to apply that outside of those two contexts, I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful because we're beginning to go beyond what the scriptures say. But in the home and in the church, men are to sacrificially lay down their lives first for the good of those whom they are caring for. Now, this doesn't mean that a team of elders or pastors should operate in isolation from women, right? That would be unwise, and I would argue unbiblical, right? Elders need to constantly be getting feedback. They need to be getting input. They need guidance from the whole church, and I would say especially those conversations need to be happening with women in the church because their voice is not always the first one that is heard. I think elders need to be proactively carving out time to listen and to know and to care for the women who are under their care, their pastoral care and concern. The last comment I want to make here is that elders appears to be the only position in the New Testament that is reserved only for men. We don't see the same thing for deacons, by the way. So deacons who are not pastors, they're to care for the practical ministry needs of the body. I think we see those are commissioned men and women who have exemplary character, who are serving practically as the hands and the feet of the body of Christ in the needs that need it, in the areas of need that just need some extra oversight and care. And so men and women are both incredible gifts to the body. They're gifts in unique ways. And so elders would be wise to press into the full body of Christ in their care and in their leadership and their concern. There's a lot more that could be said there, but that's another sermon for another time. So send your emails to Ryan at the King's Church, <laughs> Lakeland.com. All right, number two. So number one, elders serve in, plura in a plurality. Number two, elders pastor the church. Look at the first part of verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That word shepherd is the verb where we get the idea of pastor from. Now, I think this imagery, again, was particularly vivid for the early church, but it was also really important for Peter. You might remember or be familiar with the story of Peter. He is the one who, of course, uh, is denying Jesus three times. He runs away when confronted. And then after Jesus is raised, there's this kind of strange interaction with uh, Jesus and Peter as Jesus is resurrected on a beach. So in John 21, this interaction happens. I'm going to read it briefly. Jesus says, Simon, who is Peter, do you love me more than these? He's talking about the breakfast in front of him. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. You see the imagery here? Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? Peter starts to get agitated, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' kind of restoration of Peter, who, by the way, denied him three times, and now Jesus is restoring him three times, the answer over and over again is this imagery of shepherding. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. 
tend the flock of God among you. This direct commissioning was one of a shepherd. Notice the possession of Jesus, by the way. Uh, These are not Peter's sheep. Like, the king's church is not my sheep. You know who we ultimately belong to? Jesus says, feed my sheep. Right? Elders must shepherd and pastor the flock of God, recognizing that it's a stewardship, it's not ownership. It's a stewardship of what is ultimately God's. And so we are called to care for the flock as if they belong to Jesus. Because guess what? They do. We are to shepherd the flock as if they belong to Jesus. And Jesus helps show us one of the primary responsibilities of shepherding the flock is to feed the sheep. This must be on the forefront of the prayers, the mind, the responsibility, and the work of a pastor. Feeding the sheep means opening up this book, opening up the word of God, and teaching through the whole counsel of scripture, as Paul will tell the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. If you look elsewhere in the New Testament, the qualifications to be an elder, the qualifications to be a pastor, 95% of them deal with your character. They deal with who you are before the Lord. There's one skill that's given. You know what that one skill is? They must be able to teach. Now, that teach is different than preach, okay? There is always a form of teaching involved in preaching, but there's not always preaching going on in teaching. See the distinction there? It's a different word, though. But elders must be able to teach. They must be able to point people in the scriptures. They must live a life that is exemplary to follow so that people can imitate their faith. They can follow what they're saying. They must be skilled in opening up the scriptures, pointing to the truth that's found in God's word, and pushing people to see Jesus. There's also a beautiful assumption here that they are shepherding the flock of God that is among you, right? Elders are known, and they are knowing their flock. Elders are known by their flock, and they are knowing the flock. There's an old mantra that I think is so true. Shepherds ought to smell like their sheep. Right? Something's wrong if you're meeting with a shepherd who doesn't smell like his sheep. That means he's not with them. He's not investing in them. He's not spending time with them. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Number three, elders lead the church. Elders lead the church. After he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, he says, exercising oversight. Again, that word oversight is where some people get the term bishop from. I think it applies to elders right here. The idea is that elders must oversee the church they must superintend to it so they not only teach the sheep but they must also lead them they must get organized they must oversee key systems and structures or whatever it might take in order to properly tend and to care for the flock of god because don't forget sheep need led we all need led and so elders need to think through how are we overseeing the flock and when they do this by the way They do so with the tension of toughness and tenderness. Toughness and tenderness. Right? Elders must protect the flock from intruders, from outside, outsiders, from predators who will come in to devour them. We're going to see that imagery really strongly, by the way, in the second half of this passage, aren't we? They must protect the flock while they also tenderly care for them. As they go wayward, as they need assistance, they pick them up and carry them. And they push them back to see Jesus in them. So elders lead the church. Fourth, elders are called. Elders are called. Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. All of that speaks to the calling 
of an elder. There must be a clear sense within a man that they are called by God to do this work. If there's some other motivation underneath this, whether it be here, what Peter says, compulsion, well, I just have to do this, or greed, manipulating the church for their own gain, or if it's something else, maybe in our 2018 world, like a platform or a pulpit to preach from or influence over others, if that's what's at the root, if that's the motivation, there will be terrible consequences. The reality is that the flock will inevitably be hurt when elders do not serve with a clear sense of calling and if they don't serve joyfully. Doesn't mean there's not hard seasons. Doesn't mean there's not difficulties in discerning that calling. But at the end of the day, there should be a clear, I know that I'm supposed to do this. And you know what has to happen, by the way? Because somebody can feel that, right? But it needs to be affirmed by others. So somebody could come up and say, hey, I really want to be an elder, but their life is just like a wreck, right? It's not just your own internal sense of calling. It's affirmation by the local church. It's seeing over a period of time this person is indeed qualified. We're training. We're equipping them towards this. It needs to be affirmed externally over time. As I was doing some research for this sermon, I couldn't find an updated stat, but a couple years ago, the stat was something like this. Uh, something like 16,000 pastors a year leave the ministry in our country. 16,000 pastors a year. This is why that calling is so important. This is why that affirmation of that calling is so important. This is why taking our time is important when we talk about appointing elders. Right? Rather be slow. Rather take your time than rush into something to become another statistic book. Rather be slow and rather be careful. Elders must have this sense of calling. Fifth, elders are to be examples. Elders are examples. He says in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Which means just like good shepherds, elders go first. Good shepherds lead from the front. Right? This is not a picture. Sometimes modern shepherds, they like drive from behind. Sometimes they use dogs to kind of keep the sheep going in a particular direction. Not in a first century context. No, the shepherds led from the front. This is not a leader who stays back in safety outside of the range of conflict or battles. No, the shepherd goes ahead and then he calls the sheep to follow him. The shepherd goes before the flock and encounters any problems the sheep will face before they run up on them. The shepherd knows the path before them because he has walked it himself. A good elder of a church will lead his sheep as one who has a life and a faith that is worthy of imitation. Elders don't domineer over the church, and they don't demand things of the sheep that they are not pursuing by God's grace themselves. That's the picture of being an example. Lastly, and maybe, not maybe, definitely most importantly here, number six, elders are under shepherds. Elders are under shepherds. Look at what Peter says. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. However you cut it, however you make sense of whatever the New Testament says about local church leadership, you know what's true no matter what. Jesus is the lead pastor of his church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Elders and pastors who have the privilege of leading local churches are serving as under shepherds under the chief shepherd, under Jesus himself. 
It is the very flock of God under the care of the chief shepherd that the elders are called to lead as stewards. And this ought to be an immediate reminder and also a comfort of accountability. Right? Hebrews 13, the most terrifying verse in the Bible for me personally. Hebrews 13, whoever wrote that book, we'll find out in glory, says that elders are basically going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for how they cared for the flock that was under their care. There's an accountability that's built into eldership. I, be, I truly believe I will have to answer to God one day for how I led this church. To whoever is under my care that I'm giving an answer for that before the Lord. And so the question that elders have to ask is, have they led their flock closer to or further away from their chief shepherd? Are elders leading the flock closer to or further away from their chief shepherd? But you know what's so incredible in this? Is that elders who, by God's grace, are faithfully pursuing service in this way. By the way, it's not perfection. Your elders are not perfect. We're, we're broken, sinful men. But as we faithfully trod forward, we will point you as our flock to the good shepherd. And what an incredible opportunity. I love that I get to do that. I love that I get to teach you up here. I love that we get to sit down over some really good dark black coffee and talk about the good news of Jesus and how to apply it to your lives. What an incredible opportunity. But good shepherds will point people to the good shepherd. They will serve in a way that points them to that. And you know why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd? Let's talk about the gospel here for a minute. Right? Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd in John 10. You know why Peter calls him the chief shepherd? Well, don't miss what Jesus himself says. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus is a shepherd who cares for us as his sheep, and he cares so much. Sometimes we can question whether or not God cares. He cares so much that he laid down his very life for us. Though, don't miss the analogy here, we are sheep. We're the wayward ones. We're the ones that are kind of dumb animals. We need help, right? We get into all sorts of trouble on our own, but yet Jesus laid down his life when we were wayward, when we were stubborn, when we were obstinate sheep. But that's not all. He continues in John 10. He says, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. You see, he not only laid down his life for the sheep, but he was raised that we might be brought back into the fold of the good shepherd. That's the gospel, by the way, that though we are undeserving, Jesus laid down his life for us in our place so that we might be restored to him. And then now as our good shepherd, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. He leads us to green pastures. He leads us into rest. Good elders of local churches will continually point you to that. They will continue to point you to your shepherd to the one who is caring for your soul, the one that Peter said we were straying, but he has come as our overseer and our shepherd to restore us back to God. So this morning, I do have to ask the question, are you in the fold? Is Jesus your chief shepherd? Or are you on the verge of that cliff, right? Are we on the verge of wandering away to our own destruction? Or is Jesus the one who is calling us, the one who is bringing us back to the fold? Is he your shepherd? Because in light of this, Peter says that sheep are to follow both their under-shepherds, who is leading them to the chief shepherd. 
He says in verse 5, likewise, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, this younger, older conversation might be a little confusing, right? Uh, most likely in this context, elders would have been older men. Uh, I know you're looking at me. I got the hairline. We can rock it, right? Got some maturity there. Uh, there are examples in the New Testament of younger men who have exemplary maturity in the faith serving as elders, Timothy being the prime example of that. And there's not really a contrast to elder besides younger. He could be talking about maturity here. I can't answer all those questions for you. You make the decision whether or not you want to follow a younger pastor. I've got the hairline. Don't forget it, right? Um, but we're to be subject to one another. We're to be subject to the elders. We're to be subject to the chief shepherd in that. That is the shepherd-sheep relationship. And good shepherds will not abuse you, will not domineer over you. They will lead you right to King Jesus. So a quick word of application here. Like this is, again, not just a conversation for pastors, but for the church as a whole. Like we have to fight to protect the beauty of this setup from the Lord. The health of our church depends both on the theology and the practice here. So rightly understanding what the word of God has to say and then rightly pressing into this practically together. Let me read from Hebrews, move on to the second point here. The author says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God has given the church shepherds for your advantage. So I'm inviting you, church, to pray for your pastors. I'm inviting you to pray for more elders to be called and to be trained and to be equipped who are, who are called and competent and qualified for the job at hand. And our prayer as shepherds of this flock is that you are drawn closer to your chief shepherd through that relationship. So know your pastors. We desire to love you and to point you in that direction. All right, secondly, not all points are created equal, don't worry. Secondly, standing firm in the grace of God. These are kind of Peter's scattered last shots to the church. And as he turns to his final words in the letter, the theme is this idea of standing firm, of standing firm. And so he's going to list three ingredients as to what it means to stand firm. Humility, faith, and community. Humility, faith, and community. Let's look at humility first. Let's pick it up in the second half of verse 5. Peter says here, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, you know you've officially reached adulthood in your life when you get excited about getting clothes for Christmas. Amen? Like, I know the kids are in here. Anybody ask for clothes? I didn't think so, right? Now you guys want the toys, the Legos, the whole thing, right? I remember distinctly the first Christmas that I asked for bed sheets and towels and socks and received them and was thrilled, right? That's when you know you fit adulthood. Peter's going to use this imagery of clothing here, right? He says, clothe yourselves in humility, the imagery here is pretty powerful. He says, choose in the morning to put on humility like you would a t-shirt. Choose to arm yourself with it so that it becomes a part of who you are as you go about your day. And the reason why is quite simple. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
The only way to truly develop humility is to see yourself rightly in relationship to God. The one who is the creator and who is sovereign over all things and who is sustaining all things by word of his power. You know why God opposes the proud? Because it's mere foolishness before that. To claim things that are God's alone is the height of pride. It's the height of sin. But yet God uplifts the humble because they are seeing and embracing reality. They're embracing what is really true, that God is God and we are not. We know that Peter knew the dangers of pride, right? He's the one at the, the final, kind of the last supper with the disciples. He said, Jesus, everybody might deny you, but guess what? I'll be there till the end. That's good friend Peter, right? And yet we know what happened. A mere day later, the rooster crows, a servant girl is asking him about Jesus, and he runs and flees. And so we have to ask the question, where are we fooling ourselves? Where are we asserting a confidence in ourselves and in our flesh that will lead us to ruin and destruction? Where are we seeking to exalt ourselves in an improper way? Don't forget God's mighty hand that is sovereign over all, but yet has been extended to us in grace, though we were undeserving. That's humility. That's humility on the other end. He gives an action step here to, to cast our desires on him. Right? That's, again, to recognize that he is in control, he is God, and I am not. And so a practical outworking of humility is to let go of those anxieties, those desires, those things that cripple us. I'm not talking about things you might be stuck in and you might need some help with, just the everyday anxieties. Cast those upon the Lord because he cares for you. What a great picture of our chief shepherd. Secondly, we are to exercise faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is the first time in the letter that Peter sort of pulls back the curtain and explicitly mentions the spiritual opposition that lies behind all of this evil and the suffering and the persecution that these churches are facing. And the need for good shepherds becomes obvious here, right? You know who is a predator to sheep? I think lions would qualify. What do you think? Right? Lions would devour sheep. But a good shepherd stands in the way. A good shepherd helps guard the flock and leads them to safety. Now the contrast between God and the devil here are striking, right? We cast our anxieties on God who cares for us. Yet we know that the enemy will try to stir up discomfort and conviction in us in order that he might devour. Right? There's a contrast that is here. Whenever we talk about the devil, Satan, spiritual warfare, there's two dangerous tendencies that we can go to. We can either underemphasize what's going on here or overemphasize it. This is essentially what C.S. Lewis warns of in his introduction to the masterful work, The Screwtape Letters, which is written from kind of the perspective of a couple of demons. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. When we underemphasize the spiritual warfare that Peter describes here, 
we will fail to be sober-minded and watchful, which is what Peter tells us to be. We know that Satan will over and over again use our own sin and suffering against us. Now, there's some interaction that I cannot solve for you this morning between sin and the work of Satan and God's sovereignty, but it's not a coincidence that Peter goes here right after talking about pride. He says, watch out. God opposes the proud. Your pride might be a snare. Right? But then there's also God's sovereignty in this, which is keeping us from overemphasizing. Because don't get it twisted, Satan and his schemes were decisively defeated at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us of this in chapter 4. Remember the bizarre passage where Jesus descends and he proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison? I argued that's Jesus showing up in the place of the dead and saying, you think you won, but guess what's about to happen? I'm going to raise from the dead and you are decisively, the power you have will be defeated once and for all. And by the way, that's exactly where Peter goes here. Look at 10 and 11. And don't forget in the book of Job, by the way, Satan has to ask permission. Don't forget who's in control. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has, listen to this, called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. See, we resist the devil together by drawing our attention to the one who is truly in control, who has restored, who is confirming, who is strengthening, and who is establishing us. The one who rules and reigns over all things, including our adversaries. We trust the word of the cross and the empty tomb in faith that God will decisively win this victory and that it already has been won. So be aware, be watchful, guard your hearts and your minds against sin, but look to the one who has conquered. Look to the one who has decisively defeated sin, death, evil, and the grave once and for all. Finally, number three, community. Peter gives some final greetings here. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus is also probably Silas from the New Testament. He was just a faithful brother who often carried these letters around to the churches, right? There's no uh, U.S. Postal Service. There's no airplanes. That was a big responsibility. In fact, we should thank Silvanus, right? We have this letter today. He fulfilled his ministry. He was faithful in it. Then he goes on to mention she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. He's talking symbolically there about the church at Rome, the church he is at. They're in the belly of the beast of persecution. Nero is in charge. He says, we send you greetings. You're not alone. We're right here alongside you. Then he, sent, he mentions Mark, who he calls his son. Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it has more information about Peter in it than anybody else. It's kind of affectionately known as the Gospel of Peter. Mark seems to get his information from Peter himself. He says, Mark greets you. And then he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That kiss of love would have been a sign of brotherly and sisterly affection. Just want to be a symbol for that. Doesn't mean we necessarily practice that, right? I'm not real comfortable with you kissing me. But we can give a good handshake or a hug, right? We're to stir up brotherly affection. Now, why does he end like this? 
You see what he's doing. He's taking this beleaguered, little, persecuted minority, strangers to the world, and he's reminding them of their citizenship. And he's reminding them, you are not alone. In your suffering, don't forget everybody else who's suffering. As you feel persecuted against, don't forget that you are part of a kingdom that have been made family together by the blood of Christ. Don't forget the community around you. That's why suffering is so powerful, right? It drives us to isolation. He says, don't go your own way. Find yourself other sheep who can organize under a shepherd so you might be led to the chief shepherd. Right? As we think about how to effectively stand firm, I think the words of Peter here are a fitting conclusion. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. As we live as citizens, as strangers, we need to be drawn to a true and better hope than what this world offers. We need to endure in suffering. And we desperately need to do so together as the family of God. This is what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, but yet strangers to the world. So church, let's stand firm in it. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost and to bring us back into his fold, into the family of God. Though we were straying and wandering, he is the overseer and shepherd of our souls. And Peter says, this is the true grace of God. So let's stand firm in it by the grace of God. Let's pray.